Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wa al-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Ahabbaka alladhi ahababtani la, brother. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala love you for whom sake you love me. Alhamdulillah. Um, Alhamdulillah, thank you guys for joining me again for part two of our discussion uh, on the parallels of a legacy between Malcolm, meaning Malcolm X, and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So um, we're going to continue where we left off. Um, I'll complete as much as I can tonight. And uh, perhaps it'll take us maybe one more lecture to complete the whole entire discussion. Inshallah. If not, then we'll try to squeeze it in some other time because uh, there's so much. There's so much that can actually uh, be discussed on this topic. Um, I'm actually going to convert um, everything that I'm talking about into book form and make a book out of this. Uh, so this will be a book between Malcolm and Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the parallels of a legacy. We will turn that into a book, inshallah. Okay, so we left off with uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam getting shelter from um, uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam getting shelter from his grandfather and his uncle Abu Talib, and Malcolm getting shelter from foster home to foster home, and then the streets, which eventually leads him to prison at twenty years old. So Malcolm is in prison, you know, sharpening his, you know, scholarly acumen. And Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is under the auspices of his uncle, being trained as a shepherd, being trained as a businessman, because he's going on business trips with his uncle Abu Talib from Medina, from from Mecca to Syria, uh, on these business trips. So. He's sharpening his, you know, business acumen. He's sharpening his skills as a businessman, which eventually he meets Khadija, and he eventually begins to work for Khadija. So you can see how all of the dots connect, even as it relates to the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You can see how all the dots connect. For those of you uh, who are um, uh, joining us on Zoom, for those of you who are Masjid Roller members. Uh, you can use the same Zoom code that you used on Friday. So if you want to join on Zoom, uh, you can use the same Zoom code that you used on Friday to join us on Zoom, inshallah. And that is for those who are Masjid Rolda members. Um, those of you who would like to become members, you can go to our website, uh, rollthemasjid.com, um, and you can register to become uh, a member of the community. And of course, becoming a member of the community comes with certain perks, right? It comes with certain perks, inshallah. All right, so Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi is, you know, learning to become a shepherd, learning to become a businessman. Uh, and at the same token, parallel to that journey, uh, Malcolm X is in prison at 20 years old, all right? He's receptive to the older men that are in prison. He's receptive to uh, his two brothers, Reginald uh, and Philbert, who are now uh, members of the Nation of Islam. 
and they're kind to they're kind of giving Malcolm Dawa, telling him about Elijah Muhammad, the nation of Islam. So they're kind of giving him Dawa. And so all of this is happening, um, you know, parallel to each other. Um, <clears throat> and as I said before, eventually Malcolm outgrows the nation of Islam. Eventually he surpasses what the nation of Islam could offer simply because it was not the entire truth. All right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, our fitrah, our innate state of being as human beings, our intrinsic nature is to incline towards truth. We want truth. That's that's our nature, to incline towards truth, which is why when you hear the truth for the first time, your heart immediately inclines towards it, right? You don't have to think twice about it. For those of you who are converts to Islam, much like myself, the first time you heard about Islam, no one had to convince you. It automatically, tell me I'm lying. For those of you who are converts to Islam, tell me I'm lying. The first time somebody told you about Islam, your heart, you found that your heart was already leaning that way. Nobody had to convince you. Nobody had to use any fancy language. For those of you who are aspiring da'is, you're aspiring callers to Islam, you don't have to use all of this fancy language. You don't have to use this accelerated pace of, you know, trying to hurry up and give everybody da'wah so they can convert to Islam. All you have to do is say the truth. The heart naturally will incline towards it. The heart naturally aspires to be close and connected with the truth, period. That's just how it goes. This is the fitrah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fatra nasa alayha that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the human being on the fitrah. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, um, uh, Kullu ma illa yuladu ala al-fitrah. That there is no child, no human being born except the child is born on the fitrah. That does not mean that we are born Muslims. Becoming a Muslim is a conscious decision that you make once you reach the age of discernment at very least or the age of puberty at the maximum. All right, so don't say that we were all born Muslim. We were not born Muslim. Becoming a Muslim is a conscious decision that one makes to submit his or her entire will to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is something that we do indirectly as human beings born into this world. We naturally submit, but it's not a conscious decision. For in that case, then even non-Muslims would be considered Muslims because they still submit to God, you know, unconsciously as well. But that's not the meaning of Muslim in the traditional sense, in the context in which it is used in our religion. So it's very important that we make that distinction. Don't say we're all born Muslim or we're all Muslims, because then that means that non-Muslims don't have an incentive to convert to Islam. We're all born Muslim. <laughs> then what is the incentive for a non-Muslim to convert when we're all born Muslim? It's a conscious decision. So Prophet Muhammad وسلم, goes on to uh, become a shepherd, businessman, and eventually he's introduced to this woman, uh, Khadija bintu Khuwailid, who this multi-millionaire businesswoman right, that we all know about, we all know something about her life. She was a businesswoman, she was wealthy, she was beautiful. Um, 
she was one of the most sought after women in the city of Mecca. Um, the Prophet Sallallahu is introduced to her as a businesswoman and he begins to work for her around the age of 24, 24, 25, he starts to work for Khadija, right? He starts to take her merchandise from Mecca up to Syria and do business, bartering, trading with her merchandise and then bringing the, the, bringing the merchandise back to Mecca. Uh, and Khadija noticed, right? Khadija noticed that her, her um, inventory um, was kind of disappearing quickly as he goes to Syria and comes back and he comes back with all of the merchandise, he comes back with all of the money and whatever merchandise is left over. She's starting to see an increase in her wealth as this guy, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who was known as Al-Amin, the trustworthy one, even before he became a prophet. He's known as Al-Amin, right? The trustworthy one. So he's now working for Khadija. Malcolm X, on the flip side of that, Malcolm X is in prison. He's sharpening his scholar, scholarly acumen. Like he's learning, he's memorizing the Bible, uh, memorizing the, the dictionary. He's on the debate team. He's debating with you know these college students, university students, and he's reading more about the nation of Islam. So you can see where these two paths, where these two paths are going. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he met Khadija when he was 24, 25, and, uh, but he didn't experience Khadija, uh, although he married her at 25 years old, which was kind of awkward because Khadija was 40 years old. So we're talking about a 15 year age gap, right? Which was something that was unheard of during that time that a woman of Khadija's stature would not marry a man of Muhammad's stature in terms of his uh, financial status, in terms of his, um, the only thing that he had going for him in that moment was number one, his family status, because he was from Beni Hashim, right? Which was one of the upper, upper tier tribes of Quraysh. You have Quraysh, which is the mother tribe, and then you have offshoots of the mother tribe. All right, Beni Abdul Manaf, Beni Hashim, you have different tribes, sub-tribes that are connected to the major tribe, which is Quraysh. So one of the things that he had going for him, that is he was from Beni Hashim, came from a good stock, right? In addition to that, he was trustworthy. He's working for Khadija. So this is, you know, drawing her attention to him. This guy is, he, he never shorts me on any of my money. He always brings me my money back plus more. I'm starting to see an increase in my wealth ever since this guy started working for me. He comes from a good family. And so Khadija sends you know, her maidservant to go propose to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All right, quite naturally because she's older, she's 40, wealthy businesswoman, and he's 25 years old. He's a young kid and he's working for her. So quite naturally, somebody of his stature would not propose to somebody like Khadija. Understand that. he, Somebody like him would not propose to a woman like that. A woman like that is very intimidating, even in today's time. Even in today's time. Uh, and for, for men, you know, I think it's, it's, it's time for us to level up. I think it's time for the men to level up rather than trying to pull the woman down to his level why don't you level up and you know marry up instead of marrying down? And what I mean by marrying down, I think a lot of men 
don't aspire too much. We bury ourselves in Islam and, you know, the, you know, the philosophical, you know, strings of Islam. We bury ourselves underneath that, you know, text, Quran, Sunnah, you know, do this, do that, stay away from the dunya. And we bury ourselves in that. And then we pull the woman down to that. We married a woman, giving her false hopes that she can continue living her best life, being her best self, you know, and then when we marry them, we pull them down. Oh, now, you know, intermingling with non-Muslim men at your work is haram. You know, the way you dress is haram. You know, your friends are haram. Everything is haram until, you know, you kind of bring her down to yellow. This woman is aspiring to be great, living her best life. That doesn't mean that everything that she is doing in her life at that moment, at that level is, you know, Islamically sound. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the intention is not to do what Prophet Muhammad did with Khadija, and that is to bring her back more wealth, you know, increase her business, increase. This is what a man does. A man comes into your life and a man gives you room to thrive, not begin picking you apart, picking you apart until there is nothing left of you. And then when there's nothing left of you, then I'm going to marry second wife or I'm going to divorce you and I'm going to go do that to somebody else. You become a parasite. You know what a parasite is? You leech on to something and you suck it dry. And then when it is dry, then you move on to the next thing. Parasite. And this is a lot of times what happens. But the Prophet Wasallam. He did not have a chance to experience Khadija and all that she represented in his life until he was 40. Can you imagine a man ma imagine a man who marries a woman at 25 years old but he doesn't really get a chance to experience her as it relates to what she really represents in his life until 15 years later. So that's for Muslim men and you know many Muslim men who have been married for long periods of time you can see you know that process that if you give a woman time in your life you will begin you will reap the benefit of what she represents in your life whether that is you know you know emotional support whether that is a comrade whatever you know your your partner to help you get the gender that you don't usually get that from the very beginning that's a process woman has to get comfortable in the situation she has to trust you she has to love you and all of those things that once all of those boxes are checked you will get the full experience from that woman i promise you and any man who has been married long enough knows this from the very beginning you're you're just marrying the woman from the very beginning but everything that she is to become, she cannot give you all of that right there in that moment. There are things that have to transpire in her life in order for her to come into that realization of who she is, and then she can begin giving you what you need. But that can only happen when you are nurturing the woman in that relationship to help her become the best version of herself. It's a win for both of you. When she wins, you win. In the Muslim community, I can't speak about what goes on outside of the Muslim community, but I know for myself and my experiences that when Muslim women are given the the given the the 
the space to become the best version of themselves, their men win right along with them. I can't say that for any other group of people, but I know that when Muslim women are able to get to that point where they can, you know, the as Maslow's, you know, pyramid of the hierarchy of, of, of needs and the highest part, the tip of that pyramid is self-actualization. And when a woman's needs are met, the hierarchy of needs, once those needs are met and she reaches the highest point of that hierarchy, which is self-actualization, guess who wins? Guess who benefits from that? The man, the children, because she was allowed space to, you know, to arrive at the, at, at the best version of herself. Tell me I'm lying. Muslim women don't arrive at the best version of themselves and then ask for a divorce. Men do that. Women don't do that. As they say, the greatest test for a woman is when the man has nothing. And the greatest test for a man is when he has everything. Because when a man usually has everything, he usually doesn't stay. You start smelling himself and, you know, the grass is always green on the other side. But women, Muslim women, you know, they don't usually move like that. They don't usually move like that. So Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he didn't get to benefit from Khadija until 15 years later, you know, until he was 40. Right? So let's go back to the day that the Prophet. So the Prophet وسلم, marries Khadija when he's 25, she's 40, right? 15 years later, all right, and then within that 15-year span, she has a total of five children, all right? So they're averaging basically one child every five years, right? They, they're averaging one child every five years, which is, which is a good thing. And I think Muslims can learn a lot from that. Muslims can learn a lot from that. Why? Because when we get married, we immediately, especially for the men, we immediately talking about, oh, it's the sunnah to have children. Yes, yeah, the sunnah to have children, genius, if you're going to stick around and take care of them. It's not the sunnah to have children, to marry a woman and get her pregnant on the first night of your marriage. And then within six months of the marriage, you're gone. That's not the sunnah. Stop saying that, oh, that's the sunnah to have a lot of children. Yes, genius, if you're going to stick around and take care of the children. Stop getting married and just having children, baby after baby after baby. Plan out your life with your spouse. I want to have at least three years with you, and then we can work on having a family. And then when he runs this, oh, it's the sunnah, we should start off having children. Yeah, but are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? I'm not having children with someone that is not going to be there. I'm sorry. That should be stated during the sit down process. I don't want children right away. I want to be able to learn you. I want to be able to grow with you. I want to be able to have shared experiences with you. I want to be able to know who I am when I'm with you. And then after three years, we can have our first child. Two years, we can have our first child. And then after that, we'll wait another two, three years so that child is out of pampers and, you know, that child is, you know, begin its journey. And then we can work on bringing another child into the world. Some of us, 
Muslim brothers and sisters, you guys have had children, baby after baby after baby, three, four, five children within a span of three, four, five years. You're averaging one child a year. Only to have the man at the end of that road decide, I don't want to be in this situation no more. I'm out. Then you leave the woman with three, four, five children. How many Muslim women do we know in our communities that are raising five children, four children, three children by themselves? That is not the sunnah. Understand that. And that goes for the brothers and the sisters. That is not the sunnah. The Prophet ﷺ was married to Khadija for the first 15 years. First 15 years, they had five children. Zainab being the oldest, Fatima being the youngest, the baby. They had two boys, but they died in, in infancy. Qasim, Abdullah. So we go back to the day that the Prophet ﷺ met Khadija, uh, or met Jibreel in the cave of Hira, right? He's in the cave, contemplating on life, contemplating on the world, and he has this experience, right? Where he sees Angel Jibreel for the first time. Angel Jibreel says to him, read. Wasn't a coincidence that the words, the first words that Angel Jibreel uttered to him were, Iqra, read. Read. And of course, reading is essential when we're talking about being woke, when you're talking about awakening the spirit, awakening the soul, that can't happen haphazardly. There's a systematic process to being woke. And part of that is reading, reading the signs. He runs home to Khadija. I want to take you back to that moment. He runs home to Khadija. Out of all of the people that he could have chose to run home to, he runs home to Khadija. That speaks volumes as it relates to his level of trust, his level of security with her. He ran home to Khadija. If we had a similar experience right now, who's the first person that we are going to call? Who's the first person we're running home to? For some men, it might be their mothers. <laughs> Meanwhile, you got a whole wife at home and the first person you call is your mother. You don't see anything wrong with that picture? And this is especially true with a lot of Muslim men outside of the African-American you know, experience. Foreign men, let me say something to the Arab, our Arab brothers, our Desi brothers. Let me say something to you. I don't know if you're listening and I don't know if this message will reach you. And as the Prophet said, let those of you who are present convey my message to those of you who are absent. So those of you who have Muslim men, African-Americans, you have close connections and ties with Arab brothers and Desi brothers, I want you to convey this message to them. The unhealthy relationships that these men have with their mothers, it's ridiculous. Most of the divorces and the strains that have been put on many of their relationships is as a result of the unhealthy relationship of these men with their mothers. You get into an argument with your wife, you run home to your mother. You run home to your mother. 
What woman is going to respect you as a man when every single time you get into a problem with your wife at home, you run to your mother, you run to your sisters, and then you have your mother and your sisters treating your wife like crap, the mother of your children. This is unacceptable. What type of man are you? What type of man are you? It's unhealthy. It's called emotional incest. Look it up. Emotional incest. This is where the mother and son relationship is toxic. It's unhealthy. You're coddled. All of your problems are cushioned because you always have your mother to run home to. The Prophet ﷺ did not have a mother to run home to. So when he got into the relationship with Khadija, she became his everything. You understand? That is why he ran home to Khadija. What other woman he gonna run home to? His wife now becomes his comrade. You understand? SubhanAllah, man. We, I don't think we get it. I don't think that we really understand Islam, honestly. I don't think we get it. I think we are comfortable just regurgitating and puppeting what you know sounds politically correct within the Muslim sphere. I think that we are comfortable just calling ourselves Muslim, but the deeper practice of our religion, we have yet to arrive at. You know? We have yet to arrive at. Khadija became his everything. Look at how he ran home to her. He consciously chose to run home to Khadija. And running home to Khadija changed their relationship from that point forward. They were no longer husband and wife. What did they become? He runs home to Khadija. He says, Zemmiluni, Zemmiluni, cover me, cover me. He said, Enni Akhsha. And yukhzini that I fear that this is God's way of punishing me. And Khadija jumps up and she says, Kalla wallahi. She says, No, but Allah. La yukhzikallahu abadin. Allah will never humiliate somebody like you. You keep ties between you and your family. And you are truthful in your speech. You're honest. You don't lie. You keep ties with your family. You don't lie. And you take on responsibilities that are not necessarily yours. And you take care of your guests. Look at all of the things she starts to mention to him. She's watching him. This is an older woman talking to a younger man. This is an older woman talking to a younger man. This is not a husband and wife relationship in this moment. What type of relationship is this? She said, no, Allah would never humiliate somebody like you. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Those are not the qualities that you know a person possess by which Allah would humiliate them. No, this is a different experience you're having. She could have said, you're crazy. You saw what? You're crazy. She could have said, 
you're crazy. <laughs> no way in the world you saw what you said you saw. You, you, were you drinking? Come here, let me smell your breath. No way that you saw that. Their relationship was no longer husband and wife. Their relationship had elevated. This is men. This is when you get to experience your wife on another level. They were friends. They were comrades. Because once she said, once she confirmed that what he saw is what he saw, She's now a part of it, which is why when she confirmed what he said, she became the first believer. You understand? She became the first believer in his mission. She was the first person to believe in him. From that moment forward, in that moment, she became his comrade. She became to him what Musa asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for when he was on his way to Fir'aun. What did he say? Subhanallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Musa, Allah says, go to Fir'aun, innahu taga. Go to Fir'aun, he has transgressed. Musa's a little apprehensive. So he turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and says, qala rabbi shrahli sadri wa yasirli amri. Oh Allah, make my heart expand for me my chest, meaning make me tolerant. This is an arrogant tyrant that, I'm, that you're sending me to. In order for me to communicate with him, I have to have some level of tolerance. Expand for me my chest, meaning make me tolerant. And make my affair easy. Remove the list from my tongue so that he can understand clearly what I'm saying. And give me a comrade from my family. Harun Akhi. Strengthen me with his presence and make him a comrade in my mission. You understand? Khadija became to the Prophet what Harun became to Musa in that moment. A woman, though, that's the difference. She's a woman. SubhanAllah, she became the first comrade, the first convert, the first one to believe in the Prophet which is why when Aisha said what she said about Khadija, that this is an old woman, why do you keep mentioning her? The Prophet rushed to defend her. I, this woman believed in me when nobody else believed in me. I couldn't run to anybody with that information other than her. She's, that's, that's it different. <laughs> Your wife hit different when she believes in your mission. Your wife hit different. Her relationship with you is now different. It's not just a husband and wife you have and my babies and we're just, you know, sharing our home together and, you know, we eat together and we, you know, share children together. No, you are now my comrade. Khadija represented to the Prophet in that moment what Harun represented to Musa in that moment. You understand? And if 
Muslim men, brothers, if you can get your wife to become your comrade, sky is the limit. Sky is the limit. So the words that Khadija uttered, it changed the dynamic of their relationship. She went from wife to comrade real quick. She went from wife to comrade real quick. She's basically telling him, I'm with you. Whatever, whatever we got to do, like, where do we go from here? I don't care where it goes from here, but what you saw is what you saw, and I'm with you. She became his comrade. And when a man can convert his wife from being his wife to his comrade, you a winner. You won. You won. When she buys into your mission, you, know, you think about some of us as students of knowledge, man. Some of us, our wives have traveled with us halfway across the world, not knowing where in the world we're going, what we're doing, but they're there. I'm, I'm game. Let's go. I went to Saudi Arabia. I didn't speak a lick of Arabic. But, you know, neither did my wife. But I'm there. I'm there. This is when your wife goes from being just a wife to a comrade. And I don't, I don't think that Muslim men think about their relationship with their wives in that, in that instance. And I mean, women in marriages, you guys wear many different hats. You're not just a wife. Stop looking, stop restricting your role to just a wife. You're not just a wife. You're a friend. After being a wife, you are a friend. Sometimes you have to take your wife hat off and you have to communicate with your husband as a friend. I'm telling you, like if we were best friends in high school, I would say to you then as I'm saying to you right now. And believe it or not, when you take that wife hat off, it makes your husband more receptive. When your husband comes and says, I'm thinking about taking a second wife, take your wife hat off for a second. Say, can I talk to you as my friend? Can we have a conversation as friends? Like if, if we were friends in high school or in college, most women can become a comrade provided she has a husband worthy of such an honor. I, well, absolutely. That goes without saying. A woman cannot become a comrade to a man if he is not worthy of that. A woman will not allow, right? A woman will not allow herself to become a comrade to a man that she doesn't feel is deserving. A woman will not act like a wife to a man that she doesn't feel is deserving. That goes without saying. So she went from wife to comrade real quick, evidenced by his statement to Aisha when he had to correct Aisha about her derogatory statement about Khadija. She said, why do you keep mentioning this old woman when Allah has replaced her with somebody better, meaning me? And the Prophet wasallam said, you are not better than Khadija. In the Ha'amanat B, she believed in me when everybody else disbelieved in me. This is his loyalty to her. Khadija is deceased at the time that the Prophet is having this conversation with Aisha. Khadija is deceased. So he's defending Khadija, covering her just as Khadija covered him at the beginning. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the relationship between husband and wife. Um, that the women are a covering for the men and the men are a covering for the women. You understand? So this is his covering of Khadija. 
She literally covered him when he ran home and he said, Zem me loony, zem me loony, cover me, cover me. She literally covered him, literally and figuratively covered him. And now he's repaying her back, even though she is deceased. He said, She believed in me when everybody else disbelieved in me. And she considered me to be truthful when everybody else called me a liar. And she aided me with her wealth when everybody denied me their wealth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed her to give birth to all of my children and did not allow any other woman to give birth to my children. This was obviously before Maria gave birth to Ibrahim. So notice, what do you notice about this statement? He said, pay attention. I want you guys to pick, pick up on this yourself. He said to Aisha that Khadija believed in me when everybody else disbelieved in me. She considered me truthful when everybody else called me a liar. She, uh, uh, she aided me with her wealth when everybody else denied me their wealth, and she gave birth to all of my children. What do you notice about this statement? What did he mention first, and what did he mention last? Let me see who can, who can make the connection here. What's the connection here? What do you notice about her statement? You guys on Zoom, what do you notice about her statement? The first thing that he mentioned is that she believed in me when nobody else believed in me. And the last thing she said was that, the last thing he said was that, and she had all of my children. Why mention that last? Why mention that last? Assalamualaikum. Wa Um, I believe it's because Aisha was not able to, she didn't have any of his children. Well, yeah, he threw that in there to kind of to to spite her. But why mention that last? Why not mention that first? Mm. Let me think about it. <laughs> because the first thing he said is that she believed in me when nobody else believed in me. And then the last thing he said is that she had all of my children. Because having his children was an added bonus. <laughs> that was not what made her special to him. Some men say, well, that's my, that's the mother of my children. So that's the only thing that makes her special about you. That's the only thing that makes her special. He mentioned what was first. When we speak and we're giving, we're itemizing the things, we usually start with the thing that's most important to us, especially in a heated argument. We say, well, first of all, blah, blah. And our first of all is always like the boom, you know, of the conversation. You know, you're like, well, first of all, because you got to lead with the strongest one because that is the bulk of your argument, right? So usually in a heated argument, we when we're itemizing something, we usually start off with the thing that is most important to us. We don't mention that last. Because by the time we get to the last thing, it's like we don't already drag the argument out. The first thing has to be like that shock and awe. And the first thing that he mentioned was that Khadija believed in me when nobody else believed in me. That was most important to him. You understand? That was most important to him. 
The children that she had for him was just an added bonus. And he threw that in there to spite Aisha because of the disrespect that she was giving to him about Khadija. You understand? SubhanAllah, man. So the children was just an added bonus of their relationship while the assistance, the camaraderie that uh, Khadija provided was the thing that impacted him the most during that time and probably the reason why he recalled that first. Probably the reason why he recalled that first. All right. That's Khadija and the Prophet Sallallahu Now let's look at Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz. So Malcolm is in prison, right? Malcolm's 20 years old, he's in prison. He's in prison for six years, six and a half years, he's in prison. So he comes home from prison uh, in August of 1952. 1952, right? He comes home from prison. By 1953, Malcolm is named the assistant minister of the nation's temple number one in Detroit. So you can see his, it's moving fast for him. Similar to the Prophet وسلم, working for Khadija at 24 and then he marries her at 25. Move real quick. So the Prophet وسلم, marries Khadija at 25. Malcolm comes home at 26, going on 27. Uh, by 27 years old, he is the assistant minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple Number no. One in Detroit. By 1958, another five year, uh, uh, another five years later, so he's basically 31, 30, 32. He's 32, going on 33, and he marries Betty Sanders, who we will later come to know as Betty. And who is died being known as Betty Shabazz. All right. At 32 years old. So a little different than the Prophet Wasallam. He married at 25, but we're talking about different cultures, right? We're talking about different cultures. And plus, he had other things going on in his life at that time. The Prophet Wasallam had how many children? He has six children. He had four daughters and two sons. Four daughters and two sons. Anyone know the names of the Prophet Sallallahu children? There was Zainab, there was Umm Kuthum, there was Ruqayya, there was Fatima, there was Abdullah, and there was uh, Ibrahim. Those were the six children of the Prophet Sallallahu Four girls and two boys. Malcolm and Betty, they had a total of six kids, all right? They had a total of six kids as well. Not a coincidence. <laughs> they had a total of six kids as well. All right. So the Prophet وسلم, had six kids, four daughters. Uh, Malcolm, he had six daughters. I mean, think about that. Malcolm had a total of six daughters. No sons. And wallahu a'lam, the, the wisdom behind that, but six daughters. The Prophet وسلم, had four daughters and two sons. None of his sons made it past infancy. All of his daughters went on to get married, have children. Some of them had children, and they became believers and followers in him. Think, 
look at the look at the contrast. <laughs> look at the contrast. Some say Qasim was Abdullah. Some say that some say his name was Qasim. Some say his name was Abdullah. And that's where the Prophet Sallallahu gets his kunya, Abu Qasim. Abu Qasim. Some scholars say there were two different boys. Um, and Ibrahim was the third boy. Uh, nonetheless, none of them made it past infancy. None of them made it past infancy. All right? None of them made it past infancy. SubhanAllah. So the, the girl survived. All of the Prophet daughters lived during his time. They, met, they got married. The Prophet married Umm Kuthum and Ruqayyah. Both of them married uh, Uthman, obviously at different times. Uthman was married to Umm Kuthum. Uh, she became sick and died, and then he married Ruqayyah and the Prophet وسلم, and then she died, and then the Prophet وسلم, told Uthman, if I had a third daughter, I would marry you to her as well. Fatima went on to marry Ali. Zainab went, to, went on to get married. All right? So all of his girl, all of his girls lived during his time and became believers in him, right? And followed him. Malcolm had six daughters, and all of his daughters followed him. Well, I don't, I don't know to what extent they followed him. Nonetheless, his daughters were in his life at the time that he was a minister preaching uh, during those times. All right. So just like Khadija did with Prophet Muhammad وسلم, during his awakening, Betty was with Malcolm during his awakening about the nation of Islam. Right. So just as the Prophet وسلم, had that. Uh, Just as the Prophet Sallallahu had that engagement with Khadija after seeing Angel Jibreel, and that was kind of his awakening to the fact that he was a prophet, Betty Shabazz was with Malcolm during his awakening uh, of the nation of Islam. And it shows you, the, the you know, she became his comrade, right? She became his comrade. Betty became his comrade. Malcolm said once he realized what was happening with him being silenced after the comment, right? Yes, Ibrahim's mother was not Khadija, was Maria uh, uh, al Qutbiya. Maria al Qutbiya. All right. This is not a comparison. Here again, let me just say this is not a comparison. We are not comparing Malcolm to Prophet Muhammad. Sallallahu Alaihi this is drawing parallels between their lives to show you the parallels that their lives took or the parallels that existed between their lives so that we can kind of see Malcolm's life and our journey as Muslims. This is not, nobody can make a comparison between anybody and Prophet Muhammad Okay. So let me give you Malcolm's own words. Pay attention to Malcolm's words about his wife, Betty. Malcolm said, any Muslim would have known that my chickens coming home to roost comment had only been an excuse to put into action the plan for getting me out of the nation of Islam. And step one had already been taken. I put up a post the other day, right? I put up a post the other day and I said that um, when a person doesn't like you, finding a fault, finding a reason is just the icing on the cake for a person who already doesn't like you. When a person doesn't like you, 
all they're looking for is an excuse to disrespect you and treat you like the way that re they really want to treat you because they don't have an excuse yet. The only thing they have is, I don't like you. And then all they have to do is just sit back and wait long enough for you to make a mistake, right? And then they have the justification that they need. And that's what Malcolm is saying about the nation. They did not like him. He could sense, he could sense the jealousy. He could sense the envy. He could sense it. He could feel it. And the only thing that they were waiting for was the excuse. So his comment about the chickens coming home to roost was the excuse. It was the icing on the cake that they needed to get rid of him because they wanted to get rid of him anyway. But they didn't have an excuse up to that point. They didn't have a justification up to that point. And so the lesson that we get from that is that when a person doesn't like you, you ever seen, right? You ever seen you ever been in a, a situation where you thought that you and a particular person were cool, right? And then you made a mistake somewhere. And before the person even processes the mistake itself, they're already treating you differently. And you're like, damn, like we've been friends for how long? And all it took was for this one little incident to make you start treating me differently then that means that you were already feeling some type of way about me. I remember I was uh, giving a lecture on Periscope, right? And a uh, sister, she jumped on and she said, you know, I had so much respect for you. And I said, no, you, you never have any respect for me. Because if this situation was enough for you to lose respect for me, then that means that you didn't have respect for me from the beginning because the situation didn't warrant you losing respect for me. It didn't warrant that. That meant that you already didn't have respect for me. You were just using this situation to justify you saying that to me on a public platform. You were using that situation as a justification for you saying to me, I used to have a lot of respect for you. No, you didn't. You never respected me. You just didn't have a reason to disrespect me. But now you have the justification that you need it. So my respect goes out of the window. You understand? You ever been in a situation where somebody just treats you so harshly and you're like, damn, I thought we were friends. And all it took was for this one little situation for you to start treating me differently. Then that means that you were harboring something before this. They were harboring something. So Malcolm says, any Muslim would have known that my chickens coming home to roost comment had only been an excuse to put the action plan into place for getting me out of the nation of Islam. And step one had already been taken. The Muslims were given the impression that I rebelled against Mr. Muhammad. I could now anticipate step number two, and that was that I was going to be suspended or I would be isolated indefinitely. And step three would be either to provoke some Muslim ignorant of the truth to take it upon himself to kill me as a religious duty. Sound familiar? I have definitely been in that space. I have definitely been in that space. <laughs> I have definitely been in the space where I felt like 
all it took was for a scholar from Saudi Arabia to say that I am not Muslim, my blood is halal, my blood is lawful, and all it would have taken was from some ignorant Muslim to take it upon himself to say, oh, he ain't even Muslim no more. And I'm sure that those some people still out there, I'm sure, I, without a shadow of a doubt, I have no doubt in my mind. I have no doubt in my mind that there's some ignorant Muslim out there somewhere waiting for the you know, time to favor him where our paths will cross, where he can take my life. I have no, I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt about that. Which is why I move the way that I move. You know? I have no doubt about that. We, we've seen this. If you, if you pay attention, like history repeats itself only for the people who are ignorant. The scholars, they have a saying. That no one has ever gone to the extreme in their innovation, except at the end of that journey, they eventually turn to the sword. And in our case, they turn to the gun. They turn to violence. You understand? They turn to violence. No one has ever gone to the extreme in innovating in the religion, except at the end of that journey, it becomes violent. Absolutely. It, it will get violent. So Malcolm says, he already knew, this is from his autobiography, on page 311 in his autobiography, he states this himself. He said that I knew that this was the justification that they need to get me out of the nation of Islam. He said, I knew that step two was that they were going to silence me. He knew this. He said, and then step three would be to incite some ignorant Muslim to take it upon himself to kill me as a religious duty. He already knew. He already knew. What did I say at the very beginning of our lecture, of our discussion, that truth goes through three phases? Truth goes through three phases. They're either going to ridicule you, they violently oppose you, and then at the end of the journey, they accept it as evident truth. Listen to what Malcolm said. He said, the only person I, uh, only person who knew, pay attention. He said, the only person who knew was my wife, Betty. Why? Because she was his comrade. She wasn't just his wife. She was his comrade. He said, the only person who knew was my wife. I never would have dreamed that I would depend so much upon any woman for strength as I now leaned upon Betty. Just think about this man in this space a part of this organization where he knows that the vast majority of them don't like him. The vast majority of them, if they had an opportunity to off him, they would. And the only person that he can lean on for strength was his comrade. She was not just his wife. They had transcended husband and wife at that point. You understand? Our jobs, brothers and sisters, in our marriage is to transcend just being husband and wife. We are partners, we're comrades in this. You understand? 
we we have transcended husband and wife. If you still husband and wife, you still at the at, you're still in the short money. You still in the short game. You still in the short game. You want to transcend husband and wife until we are comrades. You are to me, I am to you, as Musa and Harun were to each other. As Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and Khadija were to each other in that moment, the only person that believed in the Prophet sallallahu wasallam at the beginning was Khadija. They were the only two believers in that moment. So I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, right now that are listening, and you're married, you have husbands, you have wives. Picture you and your wife, the only two believers on the planet. Picture you and your husband, the only two believers. Because that's what Khadija and the Prophet ﷺ were at that moment. They were the only two believers in that moment. SubhanAllah. We get caught up in the world. We get caught up in what we believe are options. When you are married to a woman and that loyalty is there, that camaraderie is there, there are no other options. We're going to ride this all the way out, man. I don't care if we got to argue, we whatever. You need space, you need time, all good. But we, we mend that and we come back together. And if polygyny is on the table, then we are adding to our family, not adding to subtract because that math doesn't add up. If you're married, if you're married to one wife and then you marry another wife and then one life, one wife leaves and you still you still end up with one wife, that math ain't adding up, man. It's not adding up. You're supposed to be adding on, expanding your family, not marrying one wife. The other wife, your, your relationship with her is on the rocks. She's on her way out the door and then she leaves and then you stuck with one and then you try your hand again and another wife and that didn't work. And now you still. Your math is not adding up. Your math is not adding up. That's not the way that it works. As a man in polygyny, you are adding, you are expanding your family. Not swapping one wife for another. That's not polygyny. And many of us think that we are in polygyny. You're not in polygyny. You are in the business of swapping wives. You are swapping wives. You're swapping one out for another. You're not into polygyny. You're into something different. But Malcolm, he said, the only person who knew was my wife. He said, I would never have dreamed that I would have to depend so much upon a woman for strength as I now leaned upon Betty. There was no exchange between us. Meaning the day that Malcolm was silenced for 90 days, you're not allowed to speak anymore. You can't talk about anything. Don't, you're not a representative of the nation of Islam. He knew that there was no reinstating. He knew that there was no coming back to the nation after that. He knew that. So when he left, he said he went home. He said there was no exchange between him and Betty. They didn't say a word. He said Betty said nothing. Being the caliber of wife that she is with the depth of understanding that she has. But I could feel the envelopment of her comfort. I knew she was as faithful as a servant of Allah as I was. And I knew that whatever happened, she was with me. Understand. 
she didn't have to say nothing because he knew the type of woman that she was. And no matter what was going to happen, she was down with me. Comrade. It took Prophet Muhammad 15 years to get that out of Khadija. It took Malcolm a few years just to get that out of Betty. SubhanAllah. Are you guys listening to his words? Are you listening to the words? He said Betty didn't have to say anything. We didn't even speak. He said, I came home. There was no exchange between us. Betty said nothing. Being the caliber of wife that she is and the depth of understanding that she has, but I could feel the envelopment of her comfort. Is that not what the Prophet got from Khadija when he ran home? Is that not the same thing? Are you guys not seeing this? Are you not following this? He said that she didn't say anything, but I could feel the envelopment of her comfort. And I knew that she was as faithful a servant of Allah as I was. And I knew that whatever happened, she was with me. The same thing that Khadija did for the Prophet And it speaks volumes to uh, later on how the Prophet ﷺ recognized the challenges affecting, you know, um, the women in his community. I mean, you got to think that the, Malcolm's engagement with Betty in that moment and Prophet Muhammad ﷺ's engagement with Khadija in that moment and later on, you know, what he saw. Uh, of his society and how they treated women, you had to think that that was going to affect him and his advocacy for the rights of women. Much like Prophet Muhammad وسلم, uh, Malcolm recognized the challenges that were affecting black women in America. Prophet Muhammad وسلم, said, That wallahi, I swear by Allah that I will avenge the rights of the two vulnerable people in our community, and that is women and that is, uh, that is orphans. He got on the minbar and he addressed the men who abused their, you know, he got on the minbar and he addressed the men who used to abuse their wives. And he even reminded the men in his last khutbah, he said, The Prophet in his last khutbah, his last final khutbah to this ummah in public, he got on the minbar and he said, O Muslim men, fear Allah concerning your wives. He said, for indeed you have taken these women in marriage as an amana, as a trust. And how, how much do we need a, a reboot of that khutbah in today's time? We need a reboot of that khutbah in today's time, in real time. He said, O Muslim men, fear Allah concerning your women. Because you have taken these women in marriage by an amana, by a trust in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have made their private parts halal, meaning in marriage, by your shahada. 
Any man that is married to a Muslim woman right now, the only reason why you are married to a Muslim woman is because you said, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Because other than that, that woman would be haram for you. Muslim women, it is haram for a Muslim woman to be with a non-Muslim man. The only man that is qualified to have a Muslim woman in marriage is a Muslim man. You understand? Think about that for a second. Malcolm, on the other hand, he also mentioned in one of his more iconic speeches in 1952, he said the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. So you can see the parallels in addressing the dilemma facing women in those times. And unfortunately, in today's time, um, you don't have too many Muslim imams and students of knowledge that, you know, get on the minbar and, you know, seek, you know, avenge the rights of the women. I mean, please tell me, correct me if I'm wrong. All of these scholars, PhDs, and students of knowledge, and I study with this sheikh, and I studied with that sheikh for this amount of years and studied with that sheikh for that amount of years. And I remember, you know, you getting on Instagram and getting on TikTok and you talking about, you know, well, I remember I was sitting with this sheikh and he said and all of this other stuff. But where is where is the fighting for the rights of the vulnerable people in the community that have been completely violated with complete impunity? Where? You want to impress me with your scholarship? then use your scholarship to address the unaddressed. All that PhD and you know graduated from this university and studied with this sheikh, all of that stuff means absolutely nothing if you are not gonna use your platform, you're not gonna use your PhD to speak truth to power. Your PhD is just letters in front of or behind your name. It's just a title that you use. It means absolutely nothing if you are not going to use your platform to speak truth to power. What, what are you doing? <laughs> if you're not using your platform to speak truth to power, then, then why call yourself a scholar? Why a PhD? Why? Why? It's useless. Abu Bakr anhu, he wanted to put the Quran into book form because his fear was that those who had memorized the Quran were going to die in battle. Why? Because those who memorize the Quran, they don't just sit around in the masjid waiting for somebody to come in to want to learn a surah and teach him a surah. They're out fighting. You understand? Y'all don't hear me though. So let's go back to this awakening for both Prophet Muhammad and Malcolm X. Malcolm's awakening was his psychological divorce from the nation of Islam. Notice I said psychological divorce. His psychological divorce. I mean, when you think about it, you think about um, many of these, um, many people. You had Angela Davis, you had Asada Shakur, you had uh, Huey P. Newton, you had you know, all of the, these people were PhDs. Huey P. Newton had a PhD. These were not, you understand? These, these were not your average thugs, street thugs running around with leather jackets on and guns and preaching to the choir. These were PhDs. These were scholars. Angela Davis was a scholar. Huey P. Newton was a scholar. Martin Luther King was a scholar. 
You understand? These people held doctorate degrees, PhDs, but they were on the ground preaching truth to power. Not sitting behind a computer with some books behind you, bookshelf behind you, because that I, I don't know why people do that. I'm, I'm sorry if I seem like I'm ranting right now, but I am a little bit because I get so pissed off when I see this stuff, man. I get so pissed off when I see this stuff. You scroll past Instagram and it's uh, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Salatu Wasalam, Rasulillah, and you see the, the Arabic bookshelf behind them. It's just like, why is that such a standard? Like, you gotta be with your thobon and your kufi and sitting behind, you know, Arabic books behind you. Like, what is that? That looks scholarly. Like, please tell me what, what's going on here. Why, why does everybody open up on Instagram and have to, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I come, I wear a hoodie, I'll just wear a sweater. I, you know, I make it a point. I make it a point not to don this image of scholarship and, you know, you're speaking on this higher level about Islam. It, meanwhile, what are you doing to change the narrative? What are you doing to change the narrative? You look good. You sound good. But what are you doing to change the narrative? You come on Instagram with, you know, with the books behind you and you're in front of your bookshelf with all these Arabic books and you're quoting Arabic and, you know, Sheikh, Sheikh Imam Shafi said this or Imam so-and-so said this and you, and you look good. And I'm, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I don't want anybody to say, oh, he's talking about so-and-so. I'm saying in general. I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it. The shoe fits, wear it. I'm just saying like all of that means nothing in the grand scheme, you know, in the grand scheme of trying to change the narrative. Malcolm's awakening was his psychological divorce from the nation of Islam. This set him on a journey, a tumultuous journey, albeit, to finding the truth about Islam and the truth about his own conscience. All right. Malcolm said in page 312 in his autobiography, what began to break my faith was that try as I might, I couldn't hide, that I couldn't evade, that Mr. Muhammad, instead of facing what he had done before his followers as a human weakness of prophecy, which I sincerely believe that Muslims would have understood or would have at least accepted Mr. Muhammad, instead been been will he was willing to hide and to cover up what he had done that was my major blow malcolm's major blow right malcolm's major blow was when the fit hit the shan about uh elijah muhammad you know fathering all of these children from all of these women so two of the girls were actually sisters <laughs> Two of the girls were actually sisters. I believe it was a total of seven children. You know, he fathered out of wedlock. This is outside of the woman that he was already married to, right? And as the whispers begin, you know, to, you know, echo throughout the community, Malcolm is trying, is hoping that Elijah Muhammad will come in front of the community and just kind of own it, you know, own the fact that he made this mistake as a human weakness, just accept it. You got to understand the type of person that Malcolm was, right? You got to understand the type of person that Malcolm was. Malcolm was a very genuine, very straightforward, very forthright type of individual, 
high sense of justice. You know, he just wants things to be right. That's and if you think about it, Malcolm's personality was a lot like Umar bin Khattab as well as Musa You look at Musa with Khidr, we explored that that discussion. We explored that journey with Musa and Khidr. And Musa's constantly, you know, talking to, you know, uh, or or you know, correcting, trying to correct Khidr is a direct connection to the personality that he had. You know, he's looking at what Khidr is doing and he's like, man, but in my legislation, in my, in, you know, the legislation that was given to me by God, that's wrong. And he's correcting Khidr. And Khidr's like, listen, didn't I tell you you wouldn't have the ability to follow me? But he just can't contain himself. He couldn't contain himself. And Malcolm X was a lot like that. And he said the major blow was rather than coming in front of the community and taking ownership for, you know, fathering all of these children and own it as a human weakness, he chose to hide behind it. He said, that was how I first began to realize, pay attention to his words. This is so deep. Right, Malcolm said, if I'm wrong, then I am sincerely wrong, meaning I didn't intend to be wrong. I was trying to be right, even though I was wrong. So I'm still right. You understand? I was trying to be right, but I was wrong. And even in being wrong, I'm actually right. Meaning I'm right with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. Listen to what Malcolm said, and we'll end it here. Malcolm said, that was how I first began to realize that I had believed in Mr. Muhammad more than he believed in himself. Powerful. Have you ever believed in somebody more than they believed in themselves? Meaning, have you ever ex had ex great expectations of an individual because of how you revered them and respect them? and they didn't have the same expectations of themselves. You believed in them more than they believed in themselves. SubhanAllah. I know we've seen it in our communities. I know for a fact that many of us as Muslims have believed in certain imams, certain movements, certain individual students of knowledge, da'is, that we have believed in them more than they believed in their own damn selves. I know for a fact that we've had this experience. Your expectations of the person are greater than the expectations that they have of themselves. And your expectations of them is because of how well you revere them and respect them, but they don't even revere themselves in the same light. Absolutely. I know exactly what that feels like. You're like, dang, like you, Malcolm is like, like you're not gonna come Right? You're not going to come in front of the people and just own what you did as a human weakness. Rather, you would try to hide behind what you did. And they used Malcolm, believe it or not, the Nation of Islam used Malcolm as the smokescreen to take the attention off of Elijah Muhammad and put the attention on Malcolm. Absolutely. Absolutely. As um, Cassius Clay, uh, Muhammad Ali said, if you can't beat them with facts, then baffle them with bull spit. You know the rest. You can't beat them with facts, baffle them with bull spit. So when you are 
you don't have the facts to back up, then you're looking for anything else to try to throw everybody's attention off of what was doing. And so they use Malcolm. They use Malcolm. Listen to what Malcolm said. He said, that was how I first began to realize that I had believed in Mr. Muhammad more than he believed in himself. And that was how after 12 years of never thinking for as much as five minutes about myself, I became able to finally muster up the nerve and the strength to start facing the facts and thinking for myself. Many of you who have left the Salafi movement, not the Salafi ideology, but the Salafi movement, you follow that movement, you follow behind these students of knowledge, you follow behind these sheikhs, you follow behind all of these people for years. Never once did you take time out for yourself to think for yourself. No different than Malcolm. He said, I followed the nation of Islam for 12 years. I followed this stuff. Followed this doctrine to the T for 12 years and never took five minutes. Five minutes to think for myself. He said, but now I finally had the courage. I finally had the courage to start facing the facts and thinking for myself. And this is what I like to call the journey within the journey. Malcolm is on a journey, but within that journey, there is another journey, even within that journey. Similar to Prophet Muhammad So this was Malcolm's second awakening. Malcolm's first awakening was to take him from being Malcolm Little to Malcolm X. You understand? That was his first awakening. Then his second awakening was realizing that Elijah Muhammad was not this great prophet, this great messenger that he thought he was. And that he should now start thinking for himself. That was his second awakening. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he had a couple of awakenings as well. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu first awakening was that day that Angel Jibreel came to him in the, in the cave of Hira and said to him, Iqra. He went from that moment from being a normal man to a prophet. That is not, that's an awakening. That is an awakening. That is not a normal instance. He goes up into the cave to ponder and reflect. He didn't leave out of his house that morning to go up to the cave and ponder and reflect and to know that by the end of that day, he was going to be a prophet of God. That's an awakening. He, he had no idea when he left out of his house that morning, went up to the cave and angel, he had no idea that he was going to have that interaction with Jibreel. And from that moment forward, he was going to be forever a prophet for the rest of his life. That was his first awakening. And then Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he had his second awakening. And I'll breeze through this really quickly. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had his second awakening. As for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he spent a great deal of his early, his earlier time as a prophet trying to spread the message of Tawheed while concentrating on the chiefs of Mecca, the elite. Pay attention. 
This was Prophet Muhammad second awakening. I need another seven minutes and I'll get through this. He spent most of his time catering, pan, not pandering, but catering to the elite of Mecca, Quraysh. Why? Because in his mind, he thought that if he could get Quraysh to embrace Islam, the chiefs of Quraysh, the elite from Meccan society, if he could get them to embrace Islam, then they would be able to accelerate. They would be able to accelerate the spread of Islam in Mecca. Because by the chiefs of Mecca embracing Islam, then that means that people that respected them and revered them, they would accept Islam as well. So he spent a great deal of his time catering to them, trying to get them to accept Islam. But what he didn't realize is that by appealing to the elite, he would only penetrate, right? He would only perpetuate their elitism, which essentially if defeats the message of Islam. It's the message of Islam is here to empower, right, and uplift those who are disenfranchised, those who are, you know, marginalized by uh, so their socioeconomic status. This is what Islam came to elevate them and put them on par with everybody else. Abu Bakr in his first khutbah, he said, Abu Bakr in his first khutbah, First khutbah, he got on the minbar and he said, those that you consider weak, those whom you consider weak are strong in my eyes, meaning the poor, the slaves, you know, those who are not Arabs, all of the people that you consider weak and, you know, disenfranchised, they're strong in my eyes, especially when I take their right of zakat from you. I'm going to take their zakat. They have a right to zakat, and I'm going to see to it as the khalifa that I take it from your wealth and I give it to them. You consider them weak. I consider them strong, especially after I take their right of zakat from you. You understand? He's looking at, he's judging the situation with a different scale. But by the Prophet ﷺ appealing to the elite from Mecca, he's only he's only perpetuating the elitism of them because what happens when the elite embrace Islam? What happens to the elite when they embrace Islam? They bring their elitism with them. So now they're Muslims, but they still function like the elite. You understand? Am I making sense? So the Prophet ﷺ had a journey within the journey. He had to, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to redirect him. Your mission is not to appeal to the elite. No, 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 no. Your mission is to appeal to the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor. That is who your mission, that is who you cater to. The Prophet ﷺ couldn't fathom that at the beginning. He's like, but they're poor. They don't have any resources. They don't have any money. Why would I appeal to them when not go after the elite? Because when the elite embraces, when they embrace Islam, they're going to bring their elitist mentality along with them. You understand? SubhanAllah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to remind the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in a couple of instances. One is the surah um, Abasa, right? 
and Islam would have become the way of life only for the elite, not for humanity. Exactly. Exactly. Sayyidina. Exactly. This was the only way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would elevate the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized. This, and here again, this is exactly what is happening in our time today. When you have, you know, you know, uh, foreign, you know, masajid, foreign, you know, Muslims who. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly where I'm about to go with it. You take your zakat, you send it overseas, you take your zakat, you keep it within your circle of elite massage it here in America and you never pass anything over to the poor, disenfranchised, urban, you know, ghetto Muslims, they get nothing. So it stays within the hands of the elite, even within the Muslims. So we have brought that mentality even with us into Islam. We've brought that mentality even with us to Islam. So the poor, urban, African-American Muslim communities, they get no help from these large Arab, Desi, Muslim organizations. Ikna, Isna, like, you know, yeah, you might throw a crumb here and there, and that is only to remove the stigma that you don't, you don't help out the, the more disenfranchised communities. But please, come on, man. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Your zakat stays within your community. Your sadaqah stays within your community. You only use the inner cities you know, to, to host your programs. As I said before, you do a three-day convention in, in Baltimore, one of the poorest cities in America. You, you take a ride through Baltimore. Think about the Muslims who travel from all over America for this three-day uh, three conference in, in Baltimore. Guarantee you, they never drove through the city of Baltimore. They went to their hotel, they went to the conference hall, back to the hotel, and they probably went home after the three days, never took a ride through downtown Baltimore, never took a ride to, through the projects, never took a ride through any of those to see how these people are living. And some of them Muslim, some of them Muslim, probably never went to any of the African-American masajid that are in the city of Baltimore. Hey, let's see what some of the masajid down here look like. You figure, you gotta think that you, you come from high society, right? You, you have a good job, you're making six figures, you, your wife makes six figures, you live in a big home, you came down to Baltimore for a three-day conference. Don't you think you would say, all right, well, we're in one of the poorest cities in America, let's go and find where the Masajid, and let me just write a check to some of the Masajid, since I'm here, because you're never coming back to Baltimore. <laughs> you're never coming back to Baltimore again. Never coming back to Baltimore. And I, I had a conversation with the, the principal of my school who was Palestinian, right? And we were talking the other day and he said, SubhanAllah, uh, he used to be the principal at a North school in Brooklyn. Um, and he said, SubhanAllah, when they needed help after 9-11, they called Imam Siraj. They reached out to Abdul Kareem. They reached out to Imam Siraj. They reached out to the Masjid Taqwa community for security, for protection. And we're always Johnny on the spot to ready to protect, ready to put our lives on the line for our brothers and sisters in Islam. But you wouldn't dare give any sadaqah, any charity, any substantial amount of charity to assist and aid and assist these communities. Right? But we always Johnny on the spot when it comes to security. That that seems to be what we, you know. What we're pretty much good for, 
we're good for security. Call a call black community, call Meshitaqwa. They can send some brothers over here to protect us. He, and he said that to me. He said, you know, when after 9-11, when, you know, we were kind of afraid, you know, um, we called on Imam Siraj and to send some brothers and we had protection at the school. But then you ask yourself, had that community ever sent any money to Masjid Taqwa? As much as Imam Siraj has raised, you know, I remember when Imam Siraj, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve him and protect him. I remember Imam Siraj, if you remember a couple of years ago, he was in the hospital and they did a GoFundMe, like so disgusting. They did a GoFundMe for Imam Siraj. How do you do a GoFundMe for Imam Siraj? One person could have just wrote a check for $50,000. One person. How do you do a fundraiser for somebody like Imam Siraj? That's an embarrassment. And for African-American Muslims, it's even more embarrassing. Because how many leaders do we have? And aside from whatever criticisms you have about Imam Siraj, you can you cannot say that he has not been for, you know, been there for the African-American Muslim experience. You can't say that he hasn't been there. Maybe less in his latter years than the former, but you understand what I'm saying? Like he has been there. He's hard as hell to get in and get in touch with, but I have never reached out to Imam Siraj and asked him to participate or do something for me, except that I got his approval. I, I got a yes. I don't think Imam Siraj tells anybody no. I don't think no is in Imam Siraj's vocabulary. I'm just being honest with you. And I've had personal conversations with him, issues that I have taken with him personally because he doesn't say no. And you do a GoFundMe for somebody like Imam Siraj? That's an embarrassment. Imam Siraj has to say nothing more than what he needs, and it's done. Say less. It's done. Gotta be kidding me. But here again, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to redirect the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa to uh to the real journey. The journey was not to spread Islam to the elite so the elite can spread Islam even more. No, the real journey for you, O Muhammad وسلم, was to go to those poor. So let me give you this hadith of Ibn Mas'ud and then I'll, we're done. Qala Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he narrated this hadith. He said, Marra al-mala'u min Quraysh ala Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa indahu khabab wa suhayb wa bilaw wa mikdad wa ammar faqalu ya Muhammad aradita biha'ula min qawmik? Aradita biha'ula? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he said, Marra al-mala'u min Quraysh, the elite from Quraysh. The elite from Quraysh passed by the Prophet ﷺ one time while he was sitting with Khabab, he was sitting with Suhaib, Rumi, Bilal, Ibn Abi Rabah, Ammar, Ibn Yasir, Miqdad, Ibn Aswad, and these were all, if you know, right, if you know these companions, these were all companions from the lower tiers of society. Suhaib Rumi, he was a convert who came all the way from Rome. He wasn't Arab. Yeah, Bilal was Habashi, 
You had Ammar ibn Yasir, who was the son of you know, Yasir and his wife Sumayya. They were slaves. Khabab, Mikdad ibn Aswad, another slave, right? SubhanAllah, the Prophet is sitting with these companions from the lower tiers of society and some of the elite from Quraysh walks by and sees the Prophet sitting with them. And they come over to the Prophet and they say, You okay with sitting with these low lives? You, you okay with sitting with these low lives? Are these the people who God has favored over us? Are we going to follow your message, O Muhammad, and be followers of the likes of these individuals? They told the Prophet that if you want us to follow you, you got to get rid of these Get rid of these companions from around you. Get these guys from around you. We're not going to follow you if you're going to be around these people. So the Prophet ﷺ is now torn between losing out on the message of Islam with the elite from Quraysh or chasing these poor companions from around him. He comes to a fork in the road. Same thing with Malcolm. You're going to continue to ignore what Elijah Muhammad did his immorality, you're going to continue to ignore that? Or are you going to use your better judgment? You're going to use your conscience and you're going to do what is right. The same fork in the road. The same fork in the road. The journey within the journey. Sa'ad, he said, He said, and the Prophet's heart was affected by what they said to whatever degree Allah had willed for him to be affected. He was affected. He was actually considering getting Bilal and Mikdad and all of them around from around him. He was actually considering that until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala admonished him in an ayah. And a couple of ayahs. I'll give you the two ayahs and then we're done. Surah number six, ayah 52. Turn to surah number six, ayah 52. This is the reason why that ayah was revealed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to redirect the Prophet that's not chasing behind the elite in Mecca. That's not your mission, man. That's not your mission. Your mission is here. Focus on them. That's your mission. They're thirsty. They have nothing to lose. Thirsty. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَطْرَدِ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَةِ And do not chase away those who seek the pleasure of their Lord day and night, only desiring Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't chase them away. مَا عَلَيْكَ مِنْ حِسَابِهِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ You have nothing to do with their accountability. They have nothing to do with your accountability for taqrudun fazat, you chase them away. And if you do so, then you will be from amongst the dhalimeen, you will be oppressive. And then another ayat in Surah Al-Kahf, Surah number 18, ayat 22, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَةِ And make yourself patient. 
with those who call on their Lord day and night, desiring nothing but the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And do not turn your eyes, do not overlook them, seeking the pomp and the glitter of this life. This is the admonishment. These two ayahs are admonishing the Prophet sallallahu redirecting his focus to the real journey. The journey within the journey. And I'll stop there. You guys have been great. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A lot to reflect on, a lot to ponder on. Inshallah ta'ala, I will go at it one more time. Inshallah, I'll put out a post sometime during the week. Inshallah to let everybody know. Please ponder, please reflect, please take time out to think about everything that we are talking about, everything that we are discussing. These things are so important, man. So important. Um, and I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow, um, allows us to, you know, to continue benefiting uh, from this information. هذا وصل الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين آمين وإياكم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته.